Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 130 of Control the Controllables. And we are back. We are back with the new series. We will be now coming to you every week with lots of amazing guests lined up over the next few weeks. So all of you that have been reaching out, Fear not. And what better way than to start with some breaking news coming from the Australian Open? There's not the hard 14 days of quarantine like there was before. And there's uh, there will be different conditions, though, for vaccinated versus unvaccinated. I think that's not dissimilar or won't be dissimilar as things go around the world. And that was Craig Tiley himself, the director of the Australian Open, the CEO of Tennis Australia, who I think... Anyone in tennis that didn't know Craig, certainly during the Australian Open 2021, got to know Craig, got to know about his amazing leadership style and way that he takes on board. We hear from the players all the time, the best tournament in the world is the Australian Open. Craig Tiley is the one that looks after us. He's the, he's the, he's the man of the people. He gets it. He gets the players. And I wanted to unpack who Craig Tiley was, you know, what was his journey into tennis? You know, as you know, I'm very passionate about tennis being a vehicle that takes us through this life. And certainly Craig now moving into his 60s is in a position where he is almost one of the most powerful people in our sport and is leading from the front. I'm absolutely guaranteed you're not going to be disappointed with this one. So sit back. And I'm going to hand you over to Craig Tiley. So, Craig Tiley, a massive welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Dan. Good to be talking to you all the way from actually not so sunny Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, at the times I've been to Melbourne, it could be sunny in a couple of hours' time. It yeah, no, it changes. So fast. Yeah. But no, it's a, it's a big it's a big honour for me to have you on the podcast, Craig. And I, I do really appreciate your time because I know there's lots going on in the world. I know that you are already starting to get everything sorted for, for January. And I think the big question in the tennis world, are we on or are we off Melbourne yeah. 2022? Yeah, no, we... I mean, it's the same question I was asked a year ago for the 2021, and I said we were on, and no one believed it because there wasn't much going on. You know, Wimbledon was cancelled and uh, postponed, cancelled actually, and so yeah, it was it was challenging for everyone. But we're on. We're on the last two weeks in January for sure, 100 percent, and much better conditions than we had in, in in this year in 21. And we're working with the health and with government on 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 players coming in and and uh, and how we protect our community, which has you know very low infection rate and almost negligible. And so yeah, so but that 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 those conversations are progressing really well. Uh, we'll have leading events for a couple of weeks before the Australian Open. and uh, the question is in what cities we're going to have those? And then of course, the Australian Open in Melbourne the last two weeks in January. So hundred percent it's on and 
and uh, there's nothing that's indicating that that won't take place. You must be mad after after what you went through in 2021. Yeah, it was to- it was it, yeah. I mean, I, I'm lucky that I don't have uh, you know you know. I mean, I, although I've had family, mo- many of my family members have had COVID. They live in South Africa, and uh, and uh, you know we've we've had some challenges with it. But uh, from a from living here in, in Australia, putting the event on in an environment we were we were the first event with crowds um, and bringing in international uh, competitors and athletes and and being able to do it. And we actually did it with not one positive case during the, the two weeks of the Australian yeah. Open or one positive case following it or the result of any community transmission. So that was an achievement, but it's different now. The Delta strain is a different, uh, different beast. And, and uh, you know, now we've got to do it again in 22. I, I thought this year would be the, the last time we had to do it. I thought we would be on top of this bloody thing, but yeah. But I think it's going to be a few years, maybe even longer. I, I, you know, it's clear to me now that this is this virus is with us forever, and and uh, you know we just got to get on top of it by being vaccinated and uh, practicing different different ways of of living. And and how important is it to you? I know I've heard you say before that tournaments aren't the same without fans. You know, I think we're yep. seeing, you know, Cincinnati actually just before this call, I just listened to an interview with Benoit Pair who took out John Isner earlier earlier today or, or last night. And he was saying, I just couldn't play for 18 months without the fans. I couldn't do it. You know, and here we are yeah. now, you know, the fans are back. I've got my motivation back. I've got my mojo back. You know, how important is it for you to, to try and fight for that? Oh, I think it's, it's, it's important for a couple of reasons. One, for revenue, because you've got to yeah. make these businesses and, and what people are, often people are forgetting is that none of these events are making any money. Um, yeah. You know, the cost of putting these events, the cost of the biosecurity measures that, you know, we're going to, we haven't put out, we put out publicly every year our books because it's a requirement in Australia. And, but, you know, we have a multi-million dollar loss for the, from this year, which we can fund through the cash reserve we have, but now the cash reserves exhausted. So, you know, so you've got to go into another year of starting back at, back at zero, but it's the very difficult business proposition, but, but having fans helps the revenue for one, but also it makes it, it, it adds to the, the whole event um, and, uh, and, and the experience of the players. So we, we had fans this year, which was great, even though they were compromised, although we had five days of no fans because we had a lockdown in the middle of the event. But uh, we will have fans in, in January, which will be great. And, you know, it's good to see uh, other events during the course of the year, uh, of course, the year have fans. But, of course, it all depends on what the local requirements are as Absolutely. it relates to the virus. And uh, in our case, they don't want community spread of it, so they're much more strict. And in other cities around the world, they're okay with having, you know, having more community spread. And I, I want to do a full circle back. We'll get back to, to Australia, your roles. I know it's not just Australian Open, also the CEO of, of Tennis Australia. But I, yeah. I think everyone thinks of Craig Tiley. They think of you as the, the director of the Australian Open. But I think as is traditional with our podcast, it's yeah. nice for people to see the journeys, how it started and then how you ended up there. And I know you've played a lot of different roles and important roles over yep. the time in the sport. So where where did your tennis journey start? I guess back in South Africa. Yes, yeah, it did. I mean, it's just, it's a good it's a good reminder that, you know, if you if you're lucky enough and you you land on something that bec- you become passionate about, then it doesn't really become work, it just becomes a journey and with and I I I can look back I, I hope I've still got more time in front just as much I've had behind, but yep. but I look uh, I look uh, 
you know, look back at the journey that I've been on, it's just, I, I wouldn't change it for anything. It's been fantastic. I, I always had a goal as a young kid to live at different places around the world. I love being around people to experience pe- different things. And I wanted to be a tennis player. I started late. I only started playing when I was 13 years old. And, and uh, I had a couple of fantastic coaches that, that taught me how to, how to um, love the game. And uh, I wasn't good enough to be the type of player that I wanted to be. But I was also fortunate. I realized that after traveling around and, and playing futures and that uh, I realized that I'm probably going to be a really good futures player for 20 years, <laughs> not going to make any money, not go anywhere. But, uh, but that wasn't even to be the case. But, but then I realized that, you know, I, I love this game and I loved, I actually loved helping others even while I was playing. So I then fell into coaching and thank, thank goodness, because, uh, because coaching, coaching any sport, but coaching tennis gives you life skills that you can transfer to anything else. And, uh, and I think I, I was lucky I started learning those as young. So when I was in high school, I was even running coaching programs and, and running a coaching business. But I, was, I thought I was doing it to be a tennis player, but I think I was doing it to have a career in tennis at the time. Yeah. And that, but that's the thing. I think, you know, sometimes people can look at tennis and only see the greats who are winning these big events as the success. But that's what I've loved about doing this podcast is, getting people like yourself on Craig, you know, getting so many different lenses of the sport and so many different ways that people have gone on to have success through tennis being through tennis being that vehicle, you know, and I think it's it's often not spoken about as much in, in our sport because everyone's after this holy grail of, you know, being in the top 100 in the world, you know, and just, yeah. I suppose, to jump into your position as CEO of Tennis Australia, you know, how, how do you attack that from a, I guess, a philosophical point of view, looking at the, the whole sport rather than just being measured on that kind of top, top end? Well, I think, it, you know, it's just, success should be defined by yourself. Um, I've always said that because, you, know, it, it, like, you know, does Rafa Nadal, for example, look back at his career, won 20 grand slams, is a successful? Yes. But in his mind, it's not because he wants to win 21. And then when he wins 21, you want to win 22. So I think, you know, it, it, it is defined by you. And, uh, and, and my philosophy is always, you just, every day you get up, you just do the best that you, with what you got. And, uh, and then they, they're building blocks to, you know, to a journey of success. And you're going to have ups and downs. You're going to have, you're going to have failures along the way. And you've got to, you've got to use them as teaching moments. And I think the, I, I was lucky. I, I got early into the passion. I got, I built an early passion for it. And, and it has matched with my, I enjoy helping others in, in different things and, and it's matched with that and it's matched with my ambition to be as good as I can possibly be. And, uh, and then, you know, and that's where, and, and I really loved coaching. I mean, I remember when I moved to the U S I moved there to coach and to get a degree. And, um, and uh, uh, I thought maybe at the, at the time it was to escape going back to South Africa because I had to do two years of military service and mm-hmm. I didn't want to go back and do military camps. So I thought, I go and you know maybe that was the reason too, but all the things a lot of things work out. But um, but I, but this was one where um, where we if, I've immediately realised that that was going to be a career. And, and and even speaking to you now, Craig, and obviously I've 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 followed you the last few years, and it, it's very clear that your passion for tennis and working with people is very strong. And I think even for the listeners listening and out who are maybe thinking, what are they going to do with their lives and how are they going to use tennis to open up different areas? If you're able to get that passion and able to have that strong purpose, you will ultimately, which is the ultimate success, have a better chance of having your health and your happiness. 
And, yeah. and, and, and again, that would be something in, in the tennis world. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of it. I've certainly seen a lot of it. People chasing these, these dreams can sometimes mean they lose a bit of their health, whether that's mental health or physical health, and, and yeah. also their happiness because they may be doing it for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I think it's a great point, Dan. I think it, I, I always tell people, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, change it. Because yeah. you have you control you have your control of your own destiny, so just yeah. change it. And there's nothing wrong with changing it. And in in coaching, and I even use that today. I always tell people the pain of change is greater than the pain of losing. And most people would rather lose than change. So you have got to be the one that really wants to change. And 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 I think that you know for an athlete that you're trying to teach to hit a forehand a different way because they're going to have more success with it, they've got to go through a journey of change. And you actually never arrive in our sport. You're always in transition to a better place. And and the more people realize a coach, a player, an administrator, if it is, you don't arrive. You're always constantly finding ways to improve. And if you have that attitude that you are finding ways to improve and you learn from others, I don't know everything. No one knows everything. But you, you, know, uh, you grab what you do you can from others and you just you put it into your own map and, and you make it work. So, yeah, there's no question that, um, that if someone's not enjoying what they're doing, get out because it's not worth it. Um, and, and, but the great thing about coaching tennis and, and running tennis programs is you can have such a spectrum of skills and opportunity. You know, you can be a manager of people, you can be a, a, a identifier of talent, you can be someone that works on the court and you may be someone who likes to feed balls versus someone who likes to play more and you can adjust your coaching style to that and um, you can play under, you can do, you can do that on different surfaces. You can be a confidant, a psychologist to people that you work with. And yeah, I mean, so there's, and, and then you can be a business manager, a business owner, and uh, you can apply those skills of how you make a business work into anything. Um, and so I, I think uh, as a, if you're doing that in tennis, you try and get as many different experiences in the game as you can. And, uh, and then, and then you'll, you'll, you'll have a successful pathway. You always find it. If you, if you're looking for it and you're learning every day, you'll always find it. Good advice. Um, Really good advice. And I hope everyone listens take taking that on board. And, and to move you a little bit more into your coaching, Craig, I guess there's a couple of things that I'd like to jump on. One, because I, I know you personally from this. So we'll get to the US College in a bit. I've got a bone to pick with you with some of your fans, the way that they spoke to me all of those years ago. Um, <laughs> but, but also South Africa Davis Cup. You know, I believe you were the captain back in 2000. Yep. And yep. You know, how, how was that experience to be for your home nation? Well, I was a new kid on the block. You know, I hadn't played Davis Cup for South Africa. And I, I knew some of the players didn't know them all. And I was selected by the Federation to do it. So to very quickly build a relationship with, with the players at the time. And, you know, when you have players and their support staff, they, be, they become a very tight-knit group quickly. So uh, my objective was to do what I know to do well. I, I, I could organize things well. I felt I could, I felt I could make a difference on, on, on with, with people, particularly with their, where they were mentally, with their performance on court. I felt I could help with preparation. I felt I could bring a group of people together to get a performance going, you know, spending some time with Wayne Ferreira and, and, uh, and Fozzie. Kieran Foster was, was working with, with Wayne at the time and bringing him onto the team and, and having his having his expertise contribute to the success of the team, and we had a, we had a pretty good run. We were a good team, um, and uh, and I and I thoroughly enjoyed those uh, you know those three years. Uh, we and we and I think it was we played we played Henman Rosetsky in uh, Birmingham, uh, and That's I think right. that was the I think it was the other was the quarters round of sixteen. But anyway, um, I think one was four, four and one was six in the world at the time, and uh, so it was a really good team and. 
Neil Broad was playing doubles then as well, and they were a great team. And and uh, you know we had we had an injury, a top player in in Wayne Ferreira, and he's great, uh, and also a really good person, very close friend. And um, you know we we went out and we had a good time. We lost four one. We weren't supposed to come anywhere near it, but we had a good time. And I can tell you one thing is the party afterwards wasn't attended by uh, by Tim Henman and Greg Rozeski, but it was by all the South African team. And that was one of our top parties we ever had. So yeah. we came felt we came away thinking we were winners. We made the most of it, you know. So uh, um, so you just you make the best of what with what you got. And uh, I enjoyed the Davis Cup. I enjoyed the team element of it. If you're a coach and you're in tennis, do something in team in a team environment. It's so much fun in a team environment. And so I love that. And everyone on those on those teams on the, those teams today are friends of mine, and some of them are my best friends. So, so you, never, you can never replace that experience. It was fantastic. It's a very. I've I've been fortunate enough over the last two or three years. I've helped out the Irish Davis Cup team a couple of times as as yeah. a coach, and just that that you can't you can't you can't beat that team environment. And obviously, no, it's, it's awesome. Got our US college connection, but I think even more so the Davis Cup. What hit me was that this is your nation you know this is you know yeah. you're, you're representing you know a, a whole country and and i think for some of those players to, to to and coaches to get that opportunity you know is is just incredible and you were if i'm right and correct me if i'm wrong which probably at the time didn't feel like a big thing but on on reflection i believe you were the first captain to choose a black tennis player in for yep. South Africa back in 2001 with Jeff Coatsy, yeah. is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. We, yeah, we were, you know, and, and I've always believed in, um, well, one, I've always believed in, in uh, absolutely across the board equality of everything, social equality. And I've always had that, that, that vein, you know, Wayne Ferreira was, was at the, also a massive advocate. And so having your best player was top 10 in the world, but you know, it, these players deserve the opportunity. I mean, uh, you know, I grew up in a country where there was uh, discrimination based on race and, but I was fortunate that I had parents and, and a father particularly that uh, taught us uh, to live a different life um, and, and to, to be activists against that. So, so I think uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, I'm very happy for, for Jeff, you know, at the time, Jason Stoltenberg and, and uh, you know, we, we, we had, um, it, it was fantastic. In fact, when I was in the U.S. at the time, I was living in the U.S. while I was Davis Cup captain. Um, we had um, it was Jeff and Jason, Lucinda Gibbs, and um, and Giselle Swart, which were the, were the top. Um, uh, they were the top players from South Africa that hadn't been given opportunities earlier on, and we I brought them out to the U.S. and they lived in the U.S. and trained with us, and we funded their opportunity. And so it was great when Jeff was selected for the team later on, and he's gone. He went on had a great career. Now he's Great coach, got the best doubles team in the world. Absolutely. He's been fantastic. well. It seems there's there's something in in the air or in the water in South Africa that seems to build quite tough, resilient people. So again, on the podcast, we've had Wayne on the podcast, who was yep. who was fantastic. Kieran Vorster, Alistair McCall came on as well. You know yourself, yep. and and that, that story. There seems to be similarities in all the stories of almost. You know, maybe dealings with a little bit of difficulties when you're younger, you know, being taught well, strong values from parents. And it's amazing how successful from from that era that you South Africans have been. So what what's what's the secret? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I, don't, I, I don't know if there's it is. We were talking about it recently because, 
you know, if, if you go through where South Africans just in the in the leadership and administration of tennis, you know, at one point you had the chairman and CEO of the ATP, and you had yeah. you know one of the top ESPN commentators. Yet, I mean, there was you know Ray Moore leading one of the best events in the world yeah. in Indian Wells. It's just a long list of people and former players that have gone and done done really well. It, it's you know I, I do know growing up you uh, you do have moments of or, or times of resilience. You've got to learn things, whether it be in school or we had a very strong outdoor life. We had strong values as parents. You had to, you know, you had to. People consider it old-fashioned, but you had to, you know, be at the table with your with your family, you know, in the morning and at night. And uh, you know, we also grew up with new TV, no TV. That maybe helped because yeah. uh, I think South Africa TV came to South Africa much later than the rest yeah. of the world. Yeah. Um, and we were in a country where there was where there was it, there was some interesting, you know, and. and the situation around the whole race issue and that and, and the, and the, and the being cut off from the world was, was another part of it. But um, so there were battles, we had our own battles within our country. Uh, so I think there's a lot to that. And, you know, when, when I look back at it, I, I, I think often you, you are some ways formed by your environment, but you also make choices in that environment. And if it doesn't work well for you, when you're a young kid, you find find a way later to get an environment that can help you. But yeah, look, I won't, I won't trade anything. I, I had a very lucky and a great childhood. I, um, I've got great memories from it. So parents, get rid of your TVs. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're not TVs anymore. TV, well, no, I wouldn't mind exactly. having TVs. Now it's the devices. <laughs> this is, yeah, well, exactly. And that's, hey, that's a whole different podcast, Craig. That's yeah, a, that, that, is, <laughs> that is, that is, that is having rules. I've got three young kids. My kids are under the age of 10 and our biggest challenge is, is as you know well, Dan is that is is those devices. But there's some pretty interesting techniques. And you know what? The great thing about coaching, uh, I spent most of my life coaching young people. I learned a lot coaching young people. And I, what I did learn, it's not about what I say and do, but it's about what they say and do. And it's about me trying to influence what they say and do. Yeah. And uh, and the same thing with my kids. I can tell no, you can't have iPad time. Yeah, they'll find a way yeah. to get the same amount of iPad time somewhere else. So I've got to have other techniques. Got to come up with other techniques to influence it. So it's just it's coaching. And that's another journey. Uh, well, if you today, find any fun. good ones, Craig, because I've got three <laughs> kids, 12, 12, 10, and seven. If you find any yeah. good techniques, just drop me an email. I'll, I'll pass it on. Well, I've got <laughs> I've got a nine-year-old daughter and twin boys at a seven. So right. Uh, oh wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a it's a good challenge. But uh, yeah, no, there's definite technique. Look, the easiest thing is you just they don't come in the house, but they'll still find a way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And to, I'm gonna I'm gonna lead you into um, being head coach at University of Illinois. You know, an, an amazing university that you had great success. You know, in in US college, and you know, my, I guess my leading is I, I said it off air. You know, one of my fondest memories actually is as difficult as it was. It was actually my senior year at, at LSU, and it, it was kind of my job to lead the team that year. We we've been number one in the nation my junior year, my sophomore year. I uh, sorry. Um, freshman year and gradually we were getting a little bit worse and that year was tough for us and 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 we turned up to you guys and LSU had just beaten Illinois in the Sugar Bowl which for those listening that's one of the the big ball games they play in US college for American football and all of the banners were up saying sugar is sweet but revenge is sweeter and you know you'd had there was a big thing going on and we we played indoors and I'll never forget this comment. They were shouting out at me, hey, Kieran, you've eaten too many fish and chips, dude. You know, and I, they were like, all of these comments, which I, I loved all of that. You know, I loved that. I loved that energy. And it really, I guess my reflection is, 
it was a it was a program that that the university was proud of. Everyone was into it, you know. And again, I, I saw that with LSU when we were there, you know. And I think when the teams aren't doing so well, it's hard to get that crowd going and to yeah. get it all get it all going. What what was your memories, your reflections, your experience like being a head coach at a US college? Well, I think for, you know. I- I approached being a head coach as a business. It was a business and I was running a yeah. business. I was recruiting with a budget. I was running a budget. I was, I was hiring people. I was hiring talent. I was recruiting then talent to come in. And when I started there in 94, the program was four and 21. So it played 20, wow. it had played 25 matches and lost 21 of them. Uh, and we, and I went through a journey of complete change and I didn't have the job. I had to prove myself because I was given the job on an interim basis because I hadn't been a coach before. Uh, for a team so the athletic director was testing me out and then after six months i went into his office i said you got to give me the job because i'm going to make it happen anyway agreed to do it but i was i was i'm relentless I, i'm pretty persistent with things I don't, I don't i don't give up and i'm i'm not shy to ask for something so the um so yeah so we went on a journey and and i i said to the athletic director in 10 years time uh we'll win the national title it'll be all american players I said, within the next 10 years, we'll win the national title. It'll be all American players and, uh, and we'll dominate college tennis. And, and everyone kind of laughed at me. He said, you're in Illinois, mate. It's, it's snow country. We have snow six months of the year. You know, it, it, you can't play most of the time. And I said, no, no, no. But I think I was a bit naive when I said that. Uh, but it still worked out. Um, you know, eight years later, we dominated the conference. We won eight straight Big Ten titles, something like that, I think. Uh, we won two international indoor titles. We won the NCA title in 2003, it was. So it was less than 10 years. And it was with all American players. And um, so what happened is what I said would happen. And it's, they've gone on. Brad Dance has gone and done a good job. The program's remained in the top 10. And, and I, you know, I was very proud of what we achieved there. Once we achieved that, I knew I tried really hard to set the next round of goals. And I just really struggled. I couldn't be, I wasn't motivated enough to do it. And that's why I looked for another opportunity. And that's how I ended up in Melbourne. But, but, um, but it was what a great ride that was. And, you know, those are all those players are my best friends and we close, we still talk often. We, 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 you know, we cry with each other and we laugh with each other and, and share each other's stories. And we occasionally get on a, on a zoom call now during this period to see how things are going with each other. And that's, you know, those are relationships, they're lifelong relationships. So the things I learned is when you go on your journey, keep your relationships. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I, I heard it is, is birth is the beginning, uh, death is the destination and life is the journey. And, uh, and if you, you know, you really have a look at, um, you've, got to, you've got to make the journey work for you and you've got to, you've got to keep the relationships going. Sometimes it's hard because you, you, yeah. you get to know so many people and you forget, but I'm reminded more and more now to connect. I do have a, a, an approach now every day I connect with three people randomly. Doesn't matter, you know. It can just be a be a family person, or it could be a friend or someone I didn't know. Today, this doesn't count as one of those connections, but I'll, I will just initiate a call with three people every single day, and I've tried to keep that discipline going all the way through. It's not easy, but uh, but yeah. So I think it, I think that that journey achieving that is great, and 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 we were we were the first you know winter winter weather or crappy weather school to win a national title and. And there weren't many that won national titles, as you know. Um, you know, there were there was a handful. It was normally it was Stanford or Southern Cal, yeah. uh, or, or I think Florida was in there a bit, and Georgia, Georgia um, yeah. and UCLA. Outside of that, you yeah. know, so it's well, changed okay. now. Which and I, and I think I, I hope we kind of led that change a little bit, and uh, I felt we did it the right way. We did it with hard work, but running it as a business, you came and played in front of a crowd. We used to have two people show up. 
for uh, right. for tennis matches. And we used to then, if you remember, we made them all the matches we made then in the evening. Yeah. Uh, we had a beer truck outside. We had. Uh, that's um, why I got and, abused. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we just made an event for the students. You know, we had a club, yeah. we had a students club and it was, we made it a party and an event and we very rarely lost at home. Yeah. Uh, we very rarely lost a dual match at home. You're getting me fired up, you know, thinking of the, you know, US college days. Cause it, it was, it was absolutely incredible. You know, the, the, the US college yeah. days and something I would fully recommend to anybody that gets the opportunity to experience it. It's the best pathway in the world today still. You know, there's, there's over $2.2.5 billion spent on college tennis. It's the most invested in uh, tennis opportunity for anyone in the world. So I, you know, when I came to Australia, the first thing I did is we set up a college program to increase the number of Australians going to college, play college, because everyone wanted to be a pro player. And, you know, there's, there's 1% of 1% they're going to make it doing that. Um, but a college pathway, you, you can't beat it. And now we've got college guys doing great. Johnny Pierce who's top doubles player in the world played college tennis. I mean, yes. and you know, I used to coach Kevin Anderson. He was top five in the world. He played college tennis. So you, you, it's, yeah, it's just a, it's a great pathway. Yeah. I saw, I saw a statistic a few years ago and how this has changed. I don't know, but on, on the men's side, if us college was a country that, that, that was developing tennis players, they, they were second on the list behind Spain, I believe at the time, yeah. in terms of players inside the top 250 on the ATP tour. Yeah, yeah, easy. I, I'd see that easy. I think it's probably changed more because now players on the women's side, the men's side are older generally when they make it. You know, it used to be yeah. 18, 19, and now you're mid-20s. So that's all changed. It's a longer journey. But, but, but you know, the, phys, the, um, the, the, trip, the sports science and people have done a great job because it's now, it's now about, you know, maintaining levels of fitness and, and preparation and health. So that's why I think your, your life is longer in tennis. But I, I always tell people that if you want to be a tennis player, you need more skills than just being a tennis player. So let's learn on your, let's work on your communication skills, your learning skills, your engagement skills, your talking skills, your, because they all be all going to be things that you need. And if you can educate, educate yourself yeah. on the journey while you're in another way, another is going to pick Absolutely. up you know, something else. Yeah, and just having that perspective, I had I actually had Neil Skupski and Desiree Kravchek on on last week, who had yeah. just won the Wimbledon mixed doubles title, and you know what what the question I asked them was: it seems to me that anyone that's been through college just seems to have a different outlook and it's almost a different yeah. perspective, you know, when they're on the pro tour, whereas those that are going on the pro tour in the early ages, 16, 17, they're starting their journeys. You know, yeah. they see, they, not that everyone does, but there seems to be more chance that they actually yeah. come across more mental health challenges, more, more challenges in general. And, I, and yeah. I, I, I was asking them, did they feel like maybe they had a bit of a different outlook, you know, because of, because yeah. of their route through US college, um, which I think is, yeah. it's an interesting topic. I think it's, you're right. And I, you know, that's interesting because I, I um, with the college pathway per se, like, I, I, and, and now when we look, because now I'm in the business of looking for talent and, you know, we've got some great Australian players that have come through. I mean, Ash Barty's been in our program for 12 years, as an example, of been, been taking advantage of the opportunities that the Federation puts on and, and we yeah. support her and she's fantastic. And, you know, one of the greatest players coming out of Australia, but, but it was Ash's choice to play tennis. You know, it wasn't her father's choice or her mother's choice, and her parents are fantastic too. And yeah. and uh, and I think if you have a 
if you're young, if you're 15, 16, you want to pursue a professional career, as a parent, you've got to, you've got to really make sure it's their choice yeah. because you're going, to, you're going to sacrifice a lot. You're going to sacrifice your friends. You're going to sacrifice going to college. You're going to sacrifice that period in your life. You'll never get that back again. That's gone. So it's a lifetime choice you're making. And, and there can be benefits to making that choice, but it has to be your choice. And if it's not your choice, if it's your parents' choice or someone else, it ends in tears invariably. I have to go back a little bit because it's niggling me uh, if I don't ask you this question. Why Why was the vision to have all American players at Illinois? Yeah, you know, it was. It, it's a great question. I've been asked that. I think it was, it was a cheeky vision. Okay. Because everyone else was doing it with a combination of American and foreign players. And, yeah. and I was foreign myself. I had an accent and I'm foreign. Yeah. yeah. I, I always tell people that if you... If, if you have a, a tan, a hopper of balls, a boot of a car and an accent, you're an expert. Then you can say anything. But, but, but I was one of them, I think, and there was no knowledge, but I had to learn it. But I think I made, it was a flippant remark that I made to the athletic director because he was very focused on making sure we give opportunities to local players and, mm. and local American players because we were a state school. We weren't funded by private funding. We're funded mm. by state funding. So so I think I made it just to kind of get the job maybe. So, And then I realized, crap, I've made a commitment. Um, and, uh, and then, but I also, it was just, it was much harder to do it that way because I was well connected mm. internationally. Exactly. I could have brought in, and we did, we had some greats of, uh, you know, uh, international players. I mean, Kevin Anderson being one and, and, uh, and, and Oliver Freelove from the UK being another, he's a very good friend. And so we had some really good, good guys that came in and, and it's just, I didn't want them. But I just wanted to have the vision of, have, of you know, we had local players. We had play, players from the local town on the team that won the national title. That's kind of unheard of. So, yeah. so it, was more, it was more my own issue than it was just a philosophical one, to tell you the honest truth. But right, uh, okay. we, we, I was quite happy to have international players on the team. But, but that's what a, that was a commitment I made. And as you started to come towards, you, you mentioned there, maybe you lost a little bit of motivation to kind of push it, push again. Yeah. Did that coincide with the time that you were also working with Wayne? Because I believe you were helping Wayne as you yeah. were a college coach as well. Was that one of the, the, the things that you started to look elsewhere and, and think maybe it's yeah. time to move? You know, we, we made the program at Illinois, Dan. It was a professional program. So it's a, I sold it as a place that you train to become a professional player. Yeah. And, and, we, and the proof was in the pudding because at one point, we had five of our players were in the top 250 in the world. And yeah. you know, so we had more players out of one college than most countries had. Uh, in fact, at one point, I think, uh, I think there was, there was an equal to, 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 it was because it was bad years in the UK, I think. So, so we, you know, so we had, we had some success and with that, but I, but I did have an insatiable desire on the pro to it intrigued me more to have, make an impact there too. And, and uh, I was traveling with Wayne some. That's where I got to know Fuzzy really well. And he did a brilliant job. And, and, uh, but I, I was also working with a lot of the Swiss players. In fact, one of my claim to fame, which a lot of people forget, is that uh, the upset of Pete Sampras when I was coaching George Bastel. And, and, and so I was court working two. with a lot of the Swiss. Uh, what's that? Court, court two. Court two. That was it. Yeah, yeah. the death court. The, yeah, the graveyard, the graveyard court. But, but, I, but it was an interesting story because George hadn't played on grass. And I said, I think you've got a game that can do well, particularly because the grass that year had changed at Wimbledon and it was slower. And, uh, and I said, Roehampton, you just got to have a couple of lucky things go your way. And then you qualify and you get in there and you can go and play someone from the back of the court and, uh, and you can do better than you would have done a year ago. 
And if you remember, that was the year where Leighton Hewitt beat David Nalbandian in the finals. And that was right. different, the, the, the change in the surface. So Xavier Melis um, made semis that year as well. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, so we, so what happened was we, we, so draw, I had to persuade him to go, go come and play. And we, 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 we tra- trained for two weeks before he hadn't played much. And, and then, he, and he got to the final round of qualities and then he lost in the final round of qualities in a tough match. And then he became the lucky loser and all of a sudden lucky loser gets into the main draw, wins his first round match and then plays Sampras in the second round and a very specific game plan, how to play it. And obviously Pete was also going through some confidence challenges at the time. So it was a good, good opportunity. And George went on and won that match. And, uh, and everyone was shocked. Where did this guy come from? Yeah. He, we, I quickly learned about handing the British press then, or handing yeah. any press because I hadn't handled much press up to that point, but we were living in a one bedroom apartment down the street and I was cooking the same food every night, spaghetti. And it's all we ate. It was kind of boring. And, uh, and, uh, but the press were camped out because now he was the new story, you know, so yeah. it like, but it was a fun journey, but I think the, but that's what, to come to your point with Wayne and, and, uh, um, and others that I, that I worked with on the tour, a lot with the Swiss guys. That's where I got to spend a lot of time with Roger Federer and meet him and became friends with him and his family. And I've been a long journey with him and he's a close friend and, and beautiful family. Um, so yeah, um, I, I progressed from having more interest you know, onto pro tennis than I did at college tennis at the time. But I, I, you know, I look back, I'm happy I made the move because again, my comment at the beginning of this podcast around change, you've got to force change yourself. You can't, someone's not going to make it for you. Be yes. the person who proactively makes it. And, and, and it was a tough decision because we had just, we had brought Kevin Anderson, he'd been with us for a year and I knew this kid was going to be a great tennis player and I wanted to work with him. Yeah. but I had to make a decision after him being there two years. And as is, he didn't finish college, but he, he got all the way, he's finished now, but he got all the way to the end. Um, but I, you know, it was, it was him and a few other players too. I, I didn't want to go back on my commitment, but I, if I didn't make the change, then I would never have made it. So what did you, you, you literally went from college to Australia. So what, when you originally yep. went to Australia, what position did you go into? So I was, I was recruited to be the director of player development and it was bizarre. I thought, Hey, this would be the best job in the world. The Australians have historically had the best players and they've got, uh, you know, all the best players come out of Australia per capita. They punch above their weight more than anyone. Yeah. So I'm going to go and be the director of performance player development. And, uh, and I think they recruited me off the back of the success in college. I had worked with quite a few pros that had been done well and, didn't really know who I was. I wasn't Australian. It's the first time they'd put a non-Australian in that role. But when I arrived, it was a mess. And that's, I realized now why I was brought in. And, and so I had to make changes early. But again, I was making changes of things that I thought were good. But, and, uh, and, you know, and I've had three different roles at Tennis Australia now. And so, so I, I would never have been here as long as I did if I hadn't been challenged three different times. Because uh, the same thing with any role, I think it's, it is for me, my, my makeup is hard to keep doing the same thing. I, I, I need constant change and challenge. And uh, so I've been lucky I've had that. COVID-19 has certainly given you those different challenges. So, yeah, um, it is. you know, that, that's for sure. And, and, and I think at this, this point, Craig, you know, I'd love to spend a little bit of time with you as the director of Australian Open, but also a little bit of time with you as the CEO of Tennis Australia. And, 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 and I guess my first question around that, you were talking about the most loved tennis tournament in the world. You know, I 
I know I, I was there. My boys won the won the juniors there actually doubles in two thousand and twelve, mm. and you know we then got invited by Andy into his box. The the big famous match between Andy and Novak Djokovic, the five and a half hour match. match, and yeah. before then Novak went and played for about eight hours against Rafa in the final. You know, yeah. and, and and I certainly have such fond memories of of the Australian Open. But everybody I speak to, and I often. We'll get to the quick fire round in a bit. I always ask them, you know, what's your favourite slam? And honestly, 90% of people on the podcast say Australian Open. So many people globally, we hear it all the time, you know, and and, and it, you've done an incredible job with it, Craig, and, and a big, a big well done on, on that. What what was your vision when you took over that role? You know, what yeah. was your vision at the start? And I guess how much of that has progressed as you saw it progress? Yeah, it's a great question. It was very clear to me when I took over. I said, this is, this is not a tennis event. This is an entertainment event. And we're going to make it all about entertainment. So we added the, we added the pillars of music, of few, yeah. food, kids and family. We set up a Disney ballpark. We bought the best chefs in the world. We bought the best musicians. We're Australia's largest outdoor music festival. And uh, we have over 80 bands that play over the case of two weeks. Obviously, we got we were having to change things with COVID, but we, yeah. we'll get to a good point with COVID. Um, and then we we you know we launched a, uh, an innovation fund, the venture. We, we have a venture capital fund. We have two venture capital funds. We we have an incubator where we where we where we we fund. We work close with Andy Murray on some things too, where we you know we fund some startups in in sport and entertainment. So we flipped it completely from a sports event to an entertainment event. And so our fans, when they come on, a lot of our fans come and even watch the tennis. They come and have a good time. You know, we also help by, it's it's pretty much crap weather around the rest of the world in January, except the Southern Hemisphere. Yep. So everyone that's watching it on TV sees the blue skies, having fun, the beaches, and you, you have a bit of envy for it too. So that's why a lot of people to come and visit. But, but then, and then with the players, we said, with the players, it's going to be pretty simple. We're going to make it a player's event. Uh, it's for the players. It's by the players. And, and we just got to do everything we possibly can to make it a players' event. I think everyone's realised that now, and now the big conversation is what 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 role the players have in decision making globally. And I've always believed that the players need to have a bigger voice. I've always believed that, and and uh, because ultimately, uh, you know, we are we are there, and I'm in a role to service the environment, and I'm only here for a period of time, and I'm a custodian of this event. And yep. to service the environment as best as we can for the players and, and for their team. So, so that's been our focus. It's not about me. It's not about uh, the Australian Open. It's not about Melbourne. It's about an opportunity for the players. And, and I honestly felt if they feel good about it, you know, then they'll enjoy their time. And if they enjoy their time, you know, then you, 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 you're achieving what you set out to do. So we've, we've had to constantly change and evolve um, and do different things. But I think, Many of the innovations in our sport has, has come out of the Australian Open and, and we're proud of that. And we don't talk about it much. We, we mostly keep it to ourselves, but uh, we, we let others talk about it for us. And, uh, and we tell, you know, we just, and we don't do everything right either, but as, as, long, as, we, as long as we learn from it and uh, we admit it too. And I, and I think that, and I hope I put a leadership team together that uh, one of our key core values in our organization of 600 people is that of humility. And, uh, you know, we, we have a no arsehole policy. So uh, it, it's, uh, and I think that, that does thread right through our company. And that's why they do a good job with it, with the playing group particularly, and our fans. And I also think, Craig, the fact that you front things up as a leader as well, you know, and I think 
2021 was a was a great example of that and you know I was actually I just started this podcast but obviously I'm a massive tennis fan as well yeah. as a, as well as a tennis coach and you know one thing that was very clear to me was you were you were going to take it you were going to stand there you were going to you know, you were going to front up to anyone that needed to be fronted up to. And that's, uh, I think, uh, something that the players massively respect as well. Yeah, we had a tough environment. I never want to have it again. But we had players in 14 days of tough lockdown, 172 players not being able to leave their room. The rest being able to leave for five hours under strict conditions. And it was a very difficult environment to be in. I have a great deal of respect for everyone that took that on. And But every single day, for 16 straight days, actually, an hour with a woman, an hour with the men, an hour with the staff, and an hour and a half with everyone every single day. And in many cases, you were, being, you were copying it. And it was rightfully, you know, they, they had the right questions. And, and I, all I was trying to do was just do the best we possibly could do. But I did. No one else in my, our organization should have been expected to front that. And, uh, and I fronted it and took it on. And and I, I would do it again if I had to, but we were just trying to do our best, you know, and I, but it was a tough situation for the players. And I, and I know it didn't work out for some of them, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's very hard to make it hundred percent. Was there ever a time during that 2021 Aussie Open that you thought, this is my last year. I can't, I can't put myself, <laughs> my family through this. It was hard on the family. I got to tell you, it was hard on everyone. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you the, the notes that showed up in our, my mailbox outside and, and you know, pre, pretty, there's some nasty human beings out there. Um, and uh, and because, you know, that, that people didn't want this random to go ahead because they thought it was going to be, they'd been in lockdown for months and then they didn't want to be in a position where, yeah. where, where you know, where the virus was going to be brought into the community. But it wasn't. We, we guaranteed it wasn't. It wasn't. But and then I think the players got untreated fairly early and then the players reacted unfairly treating the community early. And then, so I became the, the middle guy in between this, this battle and, and, uh, but it, it dissipated pretty quickly and the players were great on it, you know? And, and I mean, Novak, Novak, for example, he wrote me this note. We watched that back and forth and he watched that me this note about ideas on better conditions for the players. It was, it was perfectly legitimate communication and then one of the players must have leaked it or something, and then he got accused of de making demands on the event, and it wasn't it wasn't the case at all. So, unfortunately, sometimes it gets construed incorrectly publicly. But but every single one of the players were fantastic. I I I will have a lifetime of respect for what the players did, and there were some really special ones that if you know they called today and asked for anything, they'd get anything from us because of the way that they handled it, and and. Uh, um, you know, Heather Watson was one of those, you know, uh, that uh, just just very tough circumstances to be in. And, and uh, you know, and, and I think they just, they did an, an admirable job. I mean, the Murray family, we were really bummed that Andy couldn't play this year. Jamie was here, but, um, but uh, you know, you, you know, for a fact they've you know, if you just spend some time with Judy, you know, you know why the, the boys are like they are Absolutely. because of, because of her. So, yeah, I mean, it just we got great support from from everyone, which was fantastic. So, how do you how do you stop this happening again? Because I guess the the question that's in my head, or the the thought process in my head, is yeah. Australia is still they're running a different strategy with with yeah, COVID nineteen. You know, if we yeah. if we look in Europe and even at my academy, there's been there's been cases. Yeah. You know, we we isolate those that are involved. We isolate those that are close contact. 
and life moves on. You know, when they do their isolation, yeah. they come back into the environment and it's almost going to be herd immunity in Europe in some ways quite soon, the way it's, it's, it feels yeah. the way that it's going. Whereas obviously Australia have gone a much stricter, uh, stricter route. I'm not politically yeah. the person to yeah. say whether which is right and which is wrong. So what yeah. will be different in 2022? So we, we, we haven't announced it yet, but it will be very different. It's all going to be predicated on the vaccination rate. We'll hit 80% of the community vaccinated by November. Okay. So, um, so it's, it's pretty aggressive. Our current rate will put us at that. And, um, and so, um, and then everything changes. Um, but even if we don't hit it, everything changes. So there's not the hard 14 days of quarantine like there was before. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, uh, there will be different conditions though for vaccinated versus unvaccinated. Okay, um, but yeah. but I, I think that's not dissimilar. Well, won't be dissimilar as things go around the world. Like more and more now, you're not going to be able to go into restaurants unless you're vaccinated or on get on airlines or that's coming more and more. So I don't think we're going to be much different there. So we'll be able to announce in the, once we finalize with the government in the next two to four weeks, exactly where it's up to, but it, it's going to be very different conditions to it was in 21, but still there's going to be a lot of um, a strong mindset on protection of the community and protection of the players. We again want to have an event where there's no positive cases, players can feel safe. And there's no, and there's no, we, and we're not the result of any community transmission. And we can get there once once everyone's vaccinated. So, but as far as the players being vaccinated, you know, that's still an unanswered question. But there will be different conditions for the two, and it and it'll depend on if the conditions are vastly different. If you're unvaccinated, it's probably better to get vaccinated than you don't have those different conditions. Are you listening, Stefano Sitsipas? <laughs> I know he. I know he came out a couple of days ago and, and said something about it. And um, in terms of moving into, I suppose, a bigger picture bit. And and again, I've had lots of discussions with many great people over over the last year and a half on on these things. And I guess we we take the Australian Open, which is part of the Grand Slams. We take the Grand Slams, which is part of part of tennis. You know, then you've got ATP, WTA, ITF. I think what COVID's done is it's brought a lot of those discussions together. You guys yep. are doing an incredible job, but how does that filter into improving tennis? And, and I guess if you just bear with me one second, Craig, in a very simplistic form, coming from somebody listening, you know, somebody that's in tennis, there's so much fracture within the sport and so many different yeah. organizations is it realistic that we're ever going to get everybody on one page working together? Or do we just have to accept that we're going to have to manage the best that we possibly can with the different people working in, in, in different ways? Yeah, look, I mean, I think the sport will do much better working together. We've got seven governing bodies, ITF, HB, WTA, and the four Grand Slams. If they came together as a group, did things together, we'd be much better off. But but to do that, someone you've got to give something up. And who's willing to give something up to move forward? That's always the hardest question. It's the same thing as becoming a tennis player. If you want to improve your serve, you've got to give up playing matches while you're going to work on improving your serve. You know, are you willing to do that? And are you willing to, you know, to make the sacrifices you need to make? So that remain, is, remains to be resolved. Australia, we have a very unified approach to the game, which is great. We have eight states and territories all work very closely together. We have a national strategy we're enjoying more than 20% increase in, in, uh, in growth and in, in participation in the game. And it's the most, it's the second most, most participated sport in Australia behind football, behind soccer. And, uh, and per capita, there's no country in the world that has per capita the amount of people playing organized tennis as we do in Australia. 
it's a tennis country. So we, we, we're really helped by that. But we use every asset we have. The Australian Open, we use it as a promotional tool for the game in Australia. And so, so part, of our big, part of the big strategies of the Australian Open is to ensure that, that every, every opportunity we have coaches coming in and kids coming in and, and continuing to play throughout the year. We have you know, strategies on keeping people in the, in the program. Coaches, our coaches work together in one unified national coaching body. And so we're very lucky. We can do better in some areas because it's not, it's not 100% that way, but it's it's very high percentage to give you enough success that you need to have. Yep. So we're lucky that way. But but what are the what are the techniques to that success? Number one, open, transparent communication. You know, I lead the organization. The other day we had a call, and it's it's I've had a really rough few weeks for a number of reasons. And I just told the whole organization I've been I've had a tough time. You know, I, I, I admitted that things are going I'm having a difficult time. I haven't been able to respond as quickly as I want to, and and the intensity has been unbelievable. And I need to have, I need to I need to take a bit of a you know I need to step back a bit and reflect a bit and take a bit of a time out yeah. for a, a day or so. And I was I was fine admitting that to the company, you know, yeah. and. Uh, because I, you know, no one's, you know, you, everyone can have resilience, but but there's no, no one's, there's no superhuman, you know. So I, I think you got to have number one, open and transparent communication. Number two, you got to have a plan, uh, and in that plan, everyone's got to have contribute to the plans to have some skin in the game. And yep. number three, you got to keep it simple. And those are three things in in delivering the growth of the game is open, transparent communication have a plan that everyone has some skin in the game on and keep it simple that you have the elevated conversation. What are you trying to achieve? And, uh, and then with those is you really can't go wrong. And when you have a problem, then the problem doesn't manifest itself and sit over there. You start to deal with it. Um, And then you don't use the media as a platform to, to expose your issues. You go and talk to the person directly or try and solve it together because it is always about resolution. So, so I think if you have that attitude, you, from a leader, you've got to have that attitude, then that's got to filter to everyone else. Um, you know, in the next few minutes, I'm having a conversation with the CEO of the ECB, the, um, the, the cricket board, because they wanting to come to Australia, and I'm giving them some some advice on 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 how we can um, on how we can make it better for them when when the team, when the English cricket team comes to Australia. We help them helping cricket, um, and because uh, cricket in Australia, we very we work very closely with them, and and we'd love to see we'd love to see the cricketers you know have, have, have a really good time and 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 be in, in a safe way, and they've got to make it, they've all got to make a decision on what's best. So. Yeah, so just got to be open and transparent with everything you do and, and know you don't have all the answers and help where you can help. What's the, as CEO of Tennis Australia, what's the, the role of a governing body? So that what do you see as the, the primary role of Tennis Australia? Our, our primary role is to facilitate, to, really to facilitate the growth of the game in Australia. Okay. So not, not to be, the, not to be the, the, uh, and accountable for that facilitation. So education to the coaches support for the coaches resources to the clubs you know uh, uh, technology that everyone can take advantage of and putting on events that people can enjoy and you know and uh, we are servants of the game my next two questions i had written down or or, or words that i had written down are you a facilitator (laughs) you've answered that (laughs) and 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 what are you held account to you held account for the growth of the game, even though you're only facilitating it. And yeah. uh, and uh, I I think you be held you should be held to a much higher level of account than you would normally think you should be, especially when you're in a leadership role. I have much greater responsibilities than just my short term incentives and short term goals. And uh, I think you've got to I I mean I take accountability for people's health and well being. I don't have to. 
I take accountability for people's work environment. I take accountability for people's ability to improve. You know, I take accountability for the, for the, this is a straightforward one for the company being viable, especially in COVID. I take accountability for the future uh, talent you bring into the company. I take accountability for um, looking for future resources to keep yourself healthy um, from a financial point of view. So, yeah, so you, I think as leaders, you take a much broader level of accountability um, than you would normally that, that, will, that a board gives, puts on you. You've been amazing with your time, Craig. I could find myself talking to you for hours about tennis, but our quick no, fire round, we always do control the controllables. First question. Yep. What's your favorite slam outside of Australia? Oh, it's a tough question. I love them all for different reasons. Um, the, one, the one I've had the most special experiences of are Wimbledon. has been Wimbledon. Should it be five sets or three yes. for the men? <laughs> Five. Good. Tennis people will always say that, I think. It should, yeah. should players be allowed to have a medical timeout? Yes. Even though they abuse it? Make the rules tougher. The one player that... Give them, give them a limit. Give them more of a limit on the number of medical timeouts you take. Make the rules the, tougher. Good. What's one player that's never won the Australian Open that you would love to have won it? Um, well, an Australian male would be good because that hasn't happened since 1978. Oh. Mark Edmondson, Edmondson did. I, I would think Andy Murray. Yeah, he certainly, um, he certainly had his opportunities. Or he's, he's, he's yeah, been a just, great I mean, servant to the Aussie. He's, he's, he's deserved it. He's deserved it. And yes. uh, and then uh, and then uh, then uh, Ash Barty on the woman's side. Her time's coming. ATP Cup or Davis Cup. Oh, ATP Cup all the way. I can spend an hour with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Night matches or day matches? Night matches. Your favourite ever Australian Open memory? Um, I think the Nadal-Djokovic uh, match and the Federer-Nadal match and the, uh, and the Lina-Kim um, Kleister's final. And what's one rule change that you would have in tennis? Um, I would have uh, coaching on court and no lets. So that's two rule changes. <laughs> and last question, who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Oh, I think you should someone interview you. I'd love to hear about your LSU career because I'm sure it was lots, it was very spicy. <laughs> <laughs> it was certainly it was certainly spicy. Craig, you <laughs> jump onto the next call. You've been an absolute star. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck the next few months. Take care of yourself as well. And on behalf of all of the tennis world, thank you for all that you do. No, it's good to have a chat. It's nice to take a time out and have a chat about things in the past. Now move on to things in the future, but. Uh, but I appreciate it. And, you know, if one person, I've always said, if you take something, one thing away from what you've just experienced and you, and you use it and you learn from it, then it was totally worth your while. So hopefully someone can take one thing away from this. And if so, great. If not, it was a good chat. They will do. Thanks a lot, Craig. You take care. Thanks for your time. My first thing to say at the end of this podcast, in the introduction, I said Craig Tiley was into his 60s. He's not quite there. So a big apology to Craig for that, but he, he's 59 years old and he will be 60 next year. And what a, what a great guy. You know, I, I, I took so much from that. I was, I was excited to, to speak to Craig. You know, I, I really was when I got the opportunity. There were so many things that I would love to have gone into. But as you can imagine with someone 
as busy as Craig, you know, especially at this time as they're dealing with the Australian government and trying to set the right conditions for Australian Open 2022 to go ahead, to go ahead in a safe manner, but also in a manner that the players are happy with. To get an hour of his time was was quite brilliant and, I, and, and I'm so appreciative of Craig for doing that. He did give us some breaking news, you know, in terms of one, Australian Open is on, which is fantastic. But two, the fact that the conditions will be different for those that are vaccinated and those that aren't. And any tennis players listening, I think, are going to have their eyes open to that because, look, I'm not on the show to get into anything political around being vaccinated or not vaccinated. But ultimately, I think Craig is putting the marker down for where the tennis world's going to go with this. You know, and if tennis players aren't going to go with the trend of being vaccinated, they could find themselves with some big challenges on the tour moving forward. That I took from it. But the big thing, the big thing that I took from that, that hour's chat with Craig was just, it was very clear to see what an amazing leader he was. You know, someone who almost thrives under difficult situations. I love that he went into the University of Illinois and said, I'm going to win the national championship with all American players. And the fact that he could be as bold to say such a thing, but also he's a man that then sticks to his word. And, and as these tennis players, tennis coaches always talk about, Craig is that person. He's that person who's very happy to be at the helm, taking things on the chin. He's there to listen. He's there not always with the good news, but he's transparent in how he passes that on. And I think in terms of leadership skills, there's so much, many learnings from that. And I really wouldn't be surprised if we see Craig Tiley in a global position within our sport over the next few years. I think he's got all the credentials. I think he's got an amazing way with people. And, and like I say, the leadership from the front comes through loud and loud and clear. So um, I hope you enjoyed our first show back after a few weeks off. Next week, we have Faku Lagunes, who is the coach of Cameron Norrie. We then have lots more guests lined up for you. It's great to be back. I've, I've missed this the last few weeks. I'm excited for what the future of Control the Controllables is. I thank you all for your continued support. It's time to start liking, reviewing, sharing. Let's get Control the Controllables shouted from the rooftop. But until next time, I'm Dan Keenan, and we are Control the Controllables.